All right. I'm going to switch over. Oh, I'm on. Okay. Thank you, church, for, for being flexible, for, for doing that. What a privilege. And, and uh, something just awesome for me to see as I'm up here, just the church body gathering together and lifting up uh, prayers to our Lord and Savior. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to John chapter 15. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you probably know what it is. It's, it's, we're going to be looking at these I Am statements of Jesus that are found exclusively in John's Gospels. And just as a recap, and I keep saying it over and over and over again because I want it to be in your head and not forget it, that when Jesus uses this phrase, I am, he's saying this, ego emi, which translates to I am, I am, which brings us back to where? To uh, Exodus chapter 3 where we have uh, God through the burning bush revealing his name to Moses. I am who I am. So right off the bat, in each of these I am statements of Jesus, he's making a claim to be God. He's using the holy name of God, I am, Yahweh, and saying, that's me, I am God. And I, I was watching, whether it was like a Facebook reel or an a, a Instagram or something, or a YouTube video where someone says, oh, Jesus never exclusively claimed to be God. And I kind of laughed because I'm like, this is literally what I'm preaching on for the next couple of weeks together as a church. So I just want to be clear. Jesus, off the bat with each of these statements, says what? He is God, and we learn through the metaphor an important truth about his character and his nature as God. So as a little bit of a recap, last week, uh, or two weeks ago, we started, we looked at Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. That was John chapter 8. Last week, we looked in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. So this morning, we're going to read actually Jesus' last I am statement found in John's Gospel, John chapter 15. A little bit of context, and a little bit of background uh, before we get going. John chapter 13 through to 16, I would argue, is, uh, all takes place on the Thursday night, the day before Jesus Christ's crucifixion. In John chapter 13, Jesus has washed all his disciples' feet, and he's in the upper room, and through chapter 13 and 14 and, and into the beginning of 15, he's giving his disciples many comforting promises and comforting truths. He's revealed also at the end of John 13 that Judas Iscariot is the one that will betray him. Now in John 14 verse 31, which is the last verse before we get to the verse we'll read today, this is what Jesus says. He says, rise, let us go from here. So either they're on their way out of the upper room, or one person or one preacher has said they're, they're literally on the journey. They're walking in the darkness of Jerusalem over to the garden where Jesus will be betrayed. And this is where we get John chapter 15, verses 1, and I'll read till verse 11. And Jesus is talking exclusively to his disciples, the, the 11 that are with him there. He's not talking to a crowd of 5,000 that we looked at last week, but he's looking, it's just his inner circle right here, his disciples, his true disciples. So John 15, verse 1 to 11, Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 8, by this my father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commands, I will abide, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this promise that your word is truth. We thank you for the love that we have in you. We thank you so much for coming down from heaven to earth as we discussed last week, your incarnation, that you are God in human flesh. Thank you, Jesus. I pray that you be with me this morning, you guide my words, you direct me, that I don't go outside the bounds of your word. Lord, 
I just pray that, again, as we learn about who you are, that you are the true vine, that we can be encouraged, that we can see the relationship we have with you, the relationship that you have with God, your Father, the Father, and the relationship that we have with God as well. So Jesus, we love you. Thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. And in your name I pray, amen. I have to be honest, I went through the I am statements last year with the youth group students, so that's why partially I was like, oh, I'll do the IMs. They're kind of fresh in my mind. And I have to say, I was really not looking forward to preaching this particular IM just for a selfish reason. I was like, man, I don't know if there's a whole lot of, of, of applications here. I mean, overall, it's like, oh, abiding, abiding Christ because we can't do anything without him. All right, let, let's pray. Amen. Like, and I'm like, how do, I, how do I go deeper? And in my foolishness, as I prepared for youth group, I didn't really go super in-depth and super deep into the text. Rather, I stayed on the surface with the kids. And then fast forward to a few days ago, after I prepared, I think I had the opposite problem where I was like, I think I have information overload. There's so many avenues, there's so many roads to go down with just this, these 11 verses. So I promise it won't be an hour and a half. It might be, no, it won't be an hour. But um, again, just the, the beauty of, of, of God's word is just, how deep it gets and how much you can grow as you learn to study it more and learn more about Jesus and amazing truths. So if you have your notes, if you want to follow along, if this helps you stay organized, it helps me stay organized, we'll look at point number one together. We're going to be looking at the vine analogy. As Jesus reveals yet another amazing truth about himself to his disciples, we see that there's a couple of characters or a couple of metaphors. You have the vine dresser, you have the true vine, you have the branches. So we'll take some time looking at that. Who is each one of these metaphors about? And what's the relationship they have with each other? So letter A, we start, we'll start with the true vine. So in verse 1, Jesus says, I am, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. In this next I am statement, Jesus reveals to his disciples that he's not just the vine, but what? He's the true vine. In John chapter 1, John starts by saying that Jesus is the true light. In John chapter 6, last week, he's called the true bread that came down from heaven. So we have this word that's used, true. And in this verse, he's calling himself the true vine. And to claim to be true, like if I said, no, 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 guys, listen, church, I'm the true David. You might say, okay, that's weird, but, but what, I, what, you, what I would be saying is there's somebody else that's claiming to be me or someone else who's David, but forget about them. I'm the true David. So when Jesus uses this word true, he's revealing that something else is false. Something is the false vine. Something is the corrupt vine that would make Jesus use this word, I am the true vine. And the, answer, or the question is, what, what is this false vine or this corrupt vine? And in God's word, it's the nation of Israel. It's the nation of Israel. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is mentioned as being God's planted vine or his vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, you don't have to turn there, but if you want to jot these uh, verses down, just to double check me, keep me accountable, right? Everything I'm saying, I'm not making up, it's in God's word. Isaiah chapter 5, Israel's depicted as God's vineyard. It's his vine, but they're going to face judgment because they're producing toxic fruit. They're producing wild or sour grapes. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the prophet says that Israel has become to God a wild vine, a strange vine. In Ezekiel 15, it depicts Israel as an empty vine, this useless branch that's thrown into the furnace. And then I had uh, Keith read in, in Psalm chapter 80. I don't know if you caught it, but halfway through there, there's talk of vine and vineyard. And it tells of Israel's defection or rebellion of God. It keep, they keep saying, restore us, O God, restore us, restore us. So it talks about Israel's defection, their rebellion as God's vine. And even in the New Testament, you have Herod's temple, and we looked at that in our first I Am statement a little bit about how the temple looked and how it was made. But it was believed that there's this great vine that was carved in the wood. It was overlaid with gold. And what? It was so that the people knew that they were God's vine. They believed that God's life, that his love, that his blessing flowed through their nation, flowed through the Jews. To be a Jew was to automatically be connected to God. That's what they believed. However, in all these cases in the, in the Old Testament, those verses I just explained and went through, whenever Israel's compared to being God's vine, 
It goes hand in hand with God's pronouncement of judgment over them. It's their constant failing. So Israel's planted by God. God does everything right and perfect for Israel. And then what happens? Israel's unfaithful. The plan was what? That through Israel, that life would come to all that would attach themselves to Israel. Israel is to be salt and light to the earth was to to represent God to be his chosen nation, but what happens? They're unfaithful. The whole Old Testament is them chasing their idols, them chasing after foreign nations. They constantly rebel against God and rebel against his commandments. So now right here, we're seeing Jesus making this claim. He's claiming to be what? The true vine. He's saying if you want to be connected to God, connected with the Father, you must be connected to me. Through Jesus, the life of God flows and gives life to all who are connected. He's claiming, in in one way, to be the true Israel. Now what I mean by that is where Israel failed in keeping God's law, Jesus never did. Where they forsook God and chased after idols, Jesus never did. He was in complete and perfect submission to the Father and obedience in his relationship with him. Where Israel fell short and sinned, Jesus remained sinless and never did. I am the true vine. He's also attacking the Jewish way of thinking by saying this phrase, I am the true vine. He's saying that in in one sense or another, he's saying you think because you're part of the nation of Israel that you're automatically connected to God? Or you think because you're a Jew that means that God's going to treat you special and you're going to receive these special favors and blessings that God's pleased with you no matter what you do because you're of Israel descent? With this statement, he's saying absolutely not. He's saying, I am the true vine. Only life flows through me. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul reminds us that we're to be rooted and built up in who? In Jesus. As Christians, we're to be rooted and built up in Jesus, not in anything else or anyone else. Not church, not family, not religion, not good deeds. In Jesus. So letter A, we have Jesus claiming to be, what, the true vine. Where Israel fell short, Jesus says, I don't. I am the true vine. I am the fulfillment of what Israel should have been. In letter B, we see that, we see the vine dresser. The first verse again, Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. So, pretty easy question, but who's the vine dresser? God. God the Father. It's fair to ask what a vine dresser is. I'll be honest, I don't know anything about farming. The only thing I know about grapes is that you buy them at the stores, that they could be red, green, seedless. This week I bought cotton candy grapes, and uh, they're amazing. Just a little sidetrack, they're amazing, by the way. But what's a vine dresser? I was doing research, right? A vine dresser or a farmer is the one who plants the vine, who waters it, who watches it, who cares for it, who cleans it, who removes dead branches, who prunes it, It's a demanding, tedious, but loving work. So the vine dresser is demanding and loving. In the same way, we have God the Father who sent Jesus, the vine, into the world. So God the Father has sovereignly orchestrated everything together. He laid out the plan. Everything that Jesus done is done with the direction and and complete obedience and submission to the Father. Jesus does what the Father pleases or what pleases the Father, and the Father gives everything that Jesus ever needs. As I was reading about one of the 17 books this week as I was preparing for this morning, one author said something like this. I don't know if I agree with it completely, but I get the point he was making. He said, the central figure in the Gospel of John is not Jesus. Rather, it's, quote, the Father who sent me, end quote. Again, I'm not sure if I completely agree, but the point he's making is that whenever Jesus does something, Whenever he's acting, he what? He gives glory to the Father. He says, it's the Father who sent me. It's the Father's will. He's reminding the people that the work he's doing is what? The Father's work. And it's funny, and, and listen, I don't think I'm a master planner when it comes to sermon prep and having like, all the weeks lined up way ahead of time. But in each of the previous I Am statements, Jesus is seen glorifying God. So, for example, last week, When he says, I'm the bread of life, he says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what was Jesus doing? The will of the Father who sent him. 
two weeks ago when he says, I'm the light of the world, later in that chapter he says, when Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father has taught me. And He who sent me is with me. And here's the part where, where the Father gives everything Jesus needs. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. And there are a ton of other verses that we can go through in in John's Gospel alone. But the point is that Jesus is revealing the nature of His relationship with God the Father. We get a little glimpse here that that He is the true vine. And what, what? The Father's the vine dresser, the vine planter. Everything Jesus did was to glorify God the Father. Again, He's in complete obedience, complete submission, and lacks nothing all because his Father has given him everything he's needed. So we see this perfect, this perfect relationship where Israel fell short, where Israel was the false vine or the not perfect or the fulfillment of God's plan. Jesus is. Then we get to uh, letter C. We, we come across branches. Verse 2. I am the true vine. My Father is a vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So here we're introduced to two different branches. You have on one side the fruitless, and then you have the fruitful. And the fruitless branches, they represent those who are not true disciples of Jesus. They're unbelievers. And on the flip side, you have the fruitful branches that represent true followers, true disciples of Jesus. These are believers who've received the Holy Spirit, who have a regenerated heart, who have eternal life. So we see that God, the vine dresser, the Father, is at work and he's doing two divine works to both of these branches. He's judging false branches, cutting them, throwing them in the fire. And on the flip side, he's what? Pruning the fruitful branches so that why? They may bear more fruit. And I need to just take a a step away from the theme of I am to just focus on on an important theological truth together. Some theologians and some preachers have used verse 2 as an example that you can lose your salvation. So Jesus says what? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So some theologians would say, well, those branches are obviously there in Christ, They have to be in him. They have to have some sort of salvation. They have to be in some area a believer. They have to have some saving faith to begin with. And as I was studying, there's kind of a a three-tier defense against that. And I'll I'll work through them, and it'll be pretty quickly, I hope. So let's put this verse in the context for one minute. Right? Context is always key. Without context, you, you twist Scripture into whatever you want it to say. Satan did it, and I don't want to be like Satan. So context. In John 13, Jesus has washed all his disciples' feet. He tells them that one of them is going to betray them, betray him. And all the disciples, I don't know, I never really caught this, but they look at each other and they're like, they wonder, is it me? Is it me? In Matthew's account, they actually, one at a time, go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, is it I? Is it I, Lord? Am I going to betray you? Is it going to be me? We know that what? He reveals Judas to be the betrayer. The disciples had no idea that Judas was to betray their Lord. They spent three years together following Jesus, seeing miracles, eating together, praying together, traveling together, listening to Jesus' teachings together. Judas had looked like everybody else. Seemingly, he looked to be connected to Christ. But what we know is what? He was not a true disciple. He bore no fruit. He was cut off. He was an apostate, a false believer. So again, in that context, the disciples might still be shocked by this betrayal of who they thought was their friend, who they thought was their fellow believer who went through all these hard times together as they followed Jesus. Right? They might be thinking, how could someone we, we love and, and, and how could we not have no idea that he was actually going to betray him? Could this happen to us too, Jesus? Could we become like Judas at any point, just leave you and abandon you and betray you and hate you? Jesus reveals that the branch bears no fruit that's attached to him. In one sense, he could be alluding to Judas. Right? The context is he's talking to his disciples and they know he's talking about Judas. He seemingly outwardly looked to be attached to Jesus, but in reality he bore no fruit. 
He was cut off. He wasn't a true disciple to begin with. So that's, that's kind of defense number one. Defense number two, you can look at the overall bigger theme or the context of the New Testament, where you have the context of the nation of Israel. All the Jews assumed they had favor with God because they were connected to Israel. They were God's vine. Paul makes it clear, this is the reality, in Romans chapter 9 he says that not all Israel is Israel. That just by being a Jew, being connected to the nation of Israel does not automatically give you any sort of favor or special blessings from God. And further, in Romans 11, Paul furthers this analogy by explaining that Israel had been cut off from God because of their lack of sin and their lack of faith, that the church was grafted in its place. Israel was attached to God, but what? Was fruitless. He, he cut them off. And then here's kind of the third defense here. There are people today who seemingly look to be attached to Christianity. They look to be attached to a church. Maybe they're members of a local church. Maybe they're pastors. Maybe they're preachers. Maybe they're theologians. Maybe they're best-selling authors or Christian artists. They look to be connected to Jesus. Ultimately, God is going to cut them off, whether in this life or definitely the life to come. But there's been so many things, there's so many instances of these people that we thought were pillars of, of Christian uh, artists or Christian authors that what? They denounced their faith. And it, it might look on one sense, oh, they, it looks like they lost their salvation. But I would argue they, they never had it to begin with. They were bearing no fruit. And God eventually cut them off. So again, there are those who seemingly look to be attached to Jesus that look to be in him but are not. In John 6, last week, we had a crowd of over 5,000 people following Jesus. It says that they were his disciples. They followed him. At the end of that chapter, who was left following Jesus but his own 11, 12 disciples? The crowd went away. Why? Because they weren't true disciples. They were not true believers to begin with. They had a selfish heart, a selfish desire. We talked about that last week. And why do I say all this? Well, I say it because God's word is true, but it, that's a very important theological fact. Our church believes, I believe, I believe the Bible is clear that you cannot lose your salvation. You can't. And to just give a little sneak peek into next week's sermon, in John chapter 10, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he says this, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, I give them eternal life. Who can snatch them out? No one. Not no person, not no false heretic, not even yourself can take what God has given you. If you're a true disciple, if you have the Holy Spirit, if you have a regenerate heart. And then further, he says this, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So there's our encouragement. There's some of our joy this morning. Yes, we, we might go through sanctification where we, we might be backtracking in our faith. Maybe we feel further and further away from God or maybe we, we've never felt as far as we do now. But the encouragement is what? We can't lose our salvation. Right? We, we will bear fruit if we abide in Christ. And I'll get, on, I'll get to that in a little bit later. Again, there are, uh, not hundreds, but there are a lot more verses that point to this and clearly state you can't lose what God's given you. And for the sake of time, I have to move forward, but it's important to stop and talk about that because for a lot of people, this is a stumbling block to say, wait a minute, if that branch is in, is in Jesus, how can God cut them off? Well, because they're not bearing fruit. This gets to number two in your notes, the two branches. Two branches. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So letter A, you have the fruitless branches. As mentioned earlier, these are unbelievers. These are people whose hearts are not, have not been born again. They do not have the Holy Spirit. They're cut off, they're cut away, and thrown into the fire that we read a few verses later. Why? Because they don't bear fruit. And it is important to talk about what, what is fruit. You might be thinking it. Maybe you might be embarrassed to admit, I don't know, I don't, what, what is fruit? What, is that? what are we talking about? I feel like that's a very church word. Right? Oh yeah, we have to bear fruit. And then you're like, wait, what, what is fruit? Maybe, maybe I don't really know how to explain it. So, in a very vague sense, I think fruit can be any righteous attitudes, longings, desires, affections, virtues, behaviors, any righteous love for God, love for others. 
In Galatians 5, you have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In John 13, after he washes his disciples' feet, he says, by this all people will know you're my, my disciples, if you have love for one another. So I think fruit is both the external and internal, what? And how we treat people, and how we love Jesus, and how we deal with people, with these righteous and godly virtues and behaviors. Branches that have no fruit are compared to being worthless. They're compared to being thrown away. All they're good for is burning the fire. And as I was preparing this, I was just thinking, this, the same phrase kept getting in my head, you don't throw away good things. You don't. You don't throw away good things. The only thing they're useful for, again, these, these fruitless branches are burning. And this speaks of the coming judgment by God for those who are not abiding in Christ. And I have to say this too. There's not some sort of threshold of fruit or a quota of fruit that you have to bring before the Lord and if you don't meet it, then he's going to cut you off and throw you in the fire. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you bear nothing, no fruit at all, God won't say, well, you didn't give me enough fruit this week, so off to hell with you. That's not what we read here. These branches have no fruit. They're cut off. And I don't want you to leave here this morning being afraid that you don't have enough fruit before the Lord. John MacArthur said this, where there, where there is the life of God in the soul of man, it becomes evident. What does that mean? If God's within us, we can't help but to bear fruit. It's going to be the natural byproduct of salvation of God's grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. All Christians have fruit. By it we know our faith is real. In James chapter 2, James compares a dead faith which is fruitless, which is, has no good works or good deeds. And then he says there's a faith that's active, a faith that's alive. And he, he's, he's comparing, you can't just claim to be a Christian and then outwardly not look like a Christian. He's saying the fruit is going to manifest itself, the good deeds will manifest themselves out because of what Jesus has already given you. You're not saved by your good works, but good works come after God's saving grace. We can't help but to produce fruit. In Matthew 7, Jesus, when he's talking about how to identify a false teacher, how to identify a wolf who's, uh, who looks like a sheep outwardly, but they're actually a ferocious wolf, he says you'll know them by their fruit. Romans chapter 6, I know I'm listing off a bunch of verses, but this is important. Paul says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. You can't help but what? To pursue what is righteous, to pursue God. A little later in that chapter, he says, but now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. Not justification, sanctification. That's becoming more and more like Jesus, more and more holy. And in its end, eternal life. And then he reminds the, his audience, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Works do not equal salvation. Works come after God's free gift of salvation. All Christians have fruit. And then on the flip side, you have the fruitful branches. So let her be here. In verse 8, of John chapter 15, verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. So we learn that what? Fruitful branches are proof of being disciples, and the end result of bearing fruit is what? Is to glorify God, is to glorify the Father. Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So fruitful branches are to what? Continually abide in Jesus. Why? Because apart from him we can do nothing. We cannot bear any fruit unless we're what? Connected, abiding in communion and fellowship with the vine. So last week, I, I told you, I alluded to it, I bought some grapes. And I ate some of them, and I left one. 
I, I was gonna, I'm going to eat, I was t- I'm tempted to eat it now, but I'm not, because you probably don't want to just hear me chew. But if I were to go like this, if I were to just pluck it off, I'll eat it later, I'll leave it here for now. And if I just put this in my pocket, right, and I'm just like, you know what? More grapes will grow. Let me just stick this here for later. Let me put it in here. All right. And then I just go through my life. I go through the week, and I, and I check it. Mm, come on, no grapes yet? You're supposed to grow grapes. You're supposed to grow. Why isn't it growing? Because it's not a part of the vine. And as I was eating grapes, I had a different analogy, but I just thought, thought of that. I said, it'd be foolish as Christians, it'd be foolish to carry this around and say, don't worry, I'm full, I'm satisfied. There will be grapes here tomorrow, I know it. No, it's apart from the vine. This can do nothing, because why? It's not connected to the vine. The same is true for us as Christians. We can't do anything. No fruit is bore from us apart from Christ. It's not my word, he, he literally says it. Our ability to bear fruit is completely dependent, not on ourselves, it's on our connection and our relationship with Jesus. Right, so one preacher, one pastor said, the amount of fruit that we bear and the amount of maybe the, of, of the fruit we show and, and is evident in our lives is directly correlates to how connected we are in Jesus. If we're far from Jesus, if we want to be as far away as possible, maybe we're in the valley of the shadow of death, right? don't be surprised if it's hard to bear fruit. Why? Because you're, you're far away. But what? Draw near. Our relationship, our communion with Christ, the closer we are, the more fruit is bore. So again, in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So fruitful branches, they're not cut off and thrown away, but what do we read? They're pruned by the Father. Why? So that there can be more fruit grown. And on, I, I know the concept of pruning. I've never seen it. I've never done it well. Usually Stephanie say, hey, trim the bush, but don't do it too short or else it'll die. And then a week later, the, the bush is dead, and I'm like, uh. So I, I let her do some gardening and things like that. But to prune, it comes from this word to clean. To clean. So when you prune a plant, when you're pruning something, you're cleaning it so that why? It becomes better. It's more clean. When you prune a plant, you carefully cut away anything that might stunt its growth and its health. It's not a reckless cutting with scissors or with a knife or just doing it carelessly, but rather it's, it's a careful and, and precision and, and there's a preciousness to it and carefulness to this procedure. Pruning makes the branches more productive. The truth revealed here is that God, the Father, is going to prune us. He's going to prune us with the specific purpose, what, to bear more fruit, for, to give him more glory. He will take away things from us or cut away things out of our lives that hinder or stunt our growth or our fruit bearing and our relationship with him. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author says this, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So for Christians, pruning can be one of two things. Pruning from God can be pruning of sinful behaviors, things that we shouldn't be doing. God will cut those out. Why? Because it's drawing us away from him. But on the same time, God can prune us of good things. He can prune us of things that even though there's nothing morally wrong about it, it could be a neutral or a good thing, he'll prune us of it. Why? So that we can bear more fruit. It's hindering. It's the weight that the author in Hebrews is talking about that, that's hindering us. It's as if a marathon runner is purposely holding like, all, these, all these weights attached to him. He's like, why am I struggling so much? Why is everybody going past me? Because you're carrying unnecessary weight. So again, it can be sinful behaviors. It can be good things. And pruning is painful. Pruning is painful. When God cuts away our sin, he cuts away the weight that we're carrying, why, it's attached to us. Even if it's something so good that we're clinging to, right, we, we're, we, even some, we might fight for it. Right? Pruning can and will most likely be painful. One pastor said this, pruning can take place in many different ways. Pruning can take 
or be made evident through sickness, through hardships, through loss of a job or loss of a loved one, through the loss of your reputation, through a failure, through persecution, through grief or disappointment or depression, through hardship, pruning can both be painful externally, physically, and emotionally. Right? God is sovereignly using the knife to carefully prune. The vine dresser is carefully pruning us. And there's two ways we can react to this. There's really only two ways. The first is we can complain and, and fight to what we cling to, right? And, and really not have a, 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 this sort of a peace with God and, and be angry at him. God, why are you doing this to me? I want this. This is mine. How, how could you do this to me? Don't you know this hurts me? Why would you do this? Right? You can complain. You can be anxious. You can be mad. Or you can react this way. By embracing it. By understanding the theological depth of why pruning takes place. The deeper reasoning for it is what? To bear more fruit. To glorify God. To grow in our own faith. To look towards Jesus and to embrace it. Now that was Hebrews 12, verse 1, what? Laying aside the weight and sin as we run the race with endurance. And I left out verse 2 because verse 2 says this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So again, the end goal of pruning and why as a Christian, our response to pruning, which it's not easy, it's, it's hard. Why we should say thank you is because we bear more fruit. We give God more glory. James puts it this way. When you, when you come across trials and, and, and when God puts you into trials, the end result is what you should be growing in your faith. You have a deeper love and a deeper faith in God. And I don't want to get into too many specifics, but as I was just preparing this, I, just, I was just my heart was heavy this week with some convictions of, of God, are you pruning me right now? There's a situation where I, I might need to start letting go of some things and, I, and I'm, I'm sort of morally righteous and saying, I don't want to let go of these. These are good things. I like these. These will please God. But maybe my response should be, God, is this your pruning? If it is, I don't want to fight it. Why? Because the end result, I'm going to glorify you. Rather than fighting it, rather than thinking so high and mighty of myself, God, you would never prune me of this. These are good things. Don't you know? You're, look, at, look at all the good things and the glory you're getting. Maybe God's saying, David, I'm pruning that. Why? So you can give me even more glory, that I could be glorified more through you. If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn there? Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I always find when people are preaching and they read a long verse, I always like, I'm like this, and then when they get like a minute in, I'm like, I get distracted. But let's turn to Hebrews chapter 5. I want you to read along with me. No, I'm not making this up, but to also to help keep us focused. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5. Hebrews 5, verse 5. Hebrews 5, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. Let me pause there. Who does the Lord discipline? The ones he loves. The ones he loves. Maybe that needs to be your verse this week. Maybe that's those, those simple words we can memorize those. The Lord disciplines the ones he loves. When we're going through trials, when we're going through things, when we're going through pruning, remember that truth. Verse 7. It is for the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Well, there's a lot in today's society, and we see what happens with the lack of discipline. But anyway, verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and life? For the earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best for them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Verse 11. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Get this. 
but later it yields the peaceful fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So fruitful branches, pruned. God's going to take away. God's going to prune back. Why? So that we bear more fruit. So we give Him more glory. Hebrews author says endure it. Remember why. Remember what it yields. Moving on, number three. And these are more closing applications. I'm not going to camp out on these verses. You can turn back to John 15. But we learn the benefits of abiding. Number three, the benefits of abiding. There's a lot, and, and there's four in particular that I want to just highlight right now. But we get this promise of prayer. In John 15, verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, this does not mean that God is our genie. This does not mean that if I ask God and say, God, listen, I just want that new Corvette. I want that new Lamborghini. I could mask it in righteousness and say, God, listen, I want that new car. That way I can go and disciple people faster. I can get to the place I need to go faster and, and I can make more disciples because of this car. Right? God, I want a million dollars. Please give me a million dollars. Right? We, we know prayer doesn't work. That God does not operate that way. He's not our genie. As I was just researching, because Jesus says, whatever you ask or whatever you you ask whatever you wish, it will be done for you. One theologian says that there's naturally three conditions when it comes for this promise to be met, really by the believer. The first is that our prayer must be offered in Jesus' name. That is, it needs to be consistent with his person and with his will so that he might display his glory by answering it. If I say, God, give me that new guitar because, man, I'm going to look so, so cool on stage with this shiny new guitar I can't wait to get it. No, it's taking glory away from God. Why would he answer that? It's selfish. Number two, he says, uh, this promise is to only those who abide in Jesus. God can answer prayers of unbelievers. He doesn't have to. He's not obligated to. These are what Jesus says. This promise is for those who abide in him. And the third kind of prerequisite, I know it sounds weird saying that, but Christ's word must abide in the person making the request. Right? And, and I love this verse because it, it, it's for me it's simple, but it says this. It's one of the Gospels. I'm totally forgetting where it's found. But it says, A disciple, when fully trained, becomes like their teacher. So as we become more and more like Jesus, that's our goal of sanctification, and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, our will should start to closely and hopefully align more towards Jesus' will, being in obedience to him. Yes, we're still going to mess up. Yes, we're going to have still sin and we have forgiveness. But a lot of times when we're honest, I think we pray selfishly. Right? Jesus is not saying that here. He's saying this promise is for those who abide in me, who, who love me, whose, whose will is within my will. And what we can be encouraged by this promise is that God will hear our prayers. He answers them according to his wisdom and his purposes. God may not give us whatever we ask for, a million dollars, a puppy, you know, fill in the blank straight A's or, or that, that um, promotion at your job, right? In the same way, a loving or sensible earthly father wouldn't give everything their own sons would ask for. And I was trying to think, how do I make this? Because now I'm a father, and it's been crazy. It's almost four months now. But if for Naya's like third birthday, if she's like, I want a pony, how reckless would it be if I said, oh, yeah, I love you. Here's your pony. Here it is. I don't know how to take care of a pony. She can't take care of a pony. We don't have the, well, maybe we do have the yard for it, but we don't have fences there. Who's going to take care of this? It would be reckless for me as a father who loves my daughter to give her everything that she wants. In the same way, think of prayer sometimes in that way. Right? We might not know why, but maybe God's not answering it for a specific reason. The three answers to prayer is yes, no, or later. Number or, or Letter B. So that promise of prayer, verse 7. Verse 8. The Father is glorified. By this, my Father is glorified, that we bear much fruit, so prove to be my disciples. So as we bear fruit, as we show the world that we're Christians who follow Christ, that we're abiding in Him, 
we bear fruit that what? Glorifies God. The fruit's not for ourselves. The fruit is not for ourselves. It's to glorify God. Letter C, we get to experience Jesus' love. Verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. And as I'm reading this, I see the relationship that Jesus makes between Him and the Father. The Father and the branches, but also what? Jesus, the vine, and us, the branches. He says, abide in my love. We get to experience Jesus' love. And then just for the sake of time, speed along here, letter D, last one. We get joy. And again, I, not, I did a little planning, but it's funny because what's today's Advent theme? Joy. We read verses about it. We sang about it. Here Jesus uses the word joy. Verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be with you and your joy may be full. He knows where he's going hours later. The disciples, they still can't understand that Jesus, the Savior of the world, is going to be taken from them for three days. He's going to die on the cross in their place, in our place, and be in the grave for three days. He said it over and over again in the Gospels. In some, one sense, I think Jesus is, is helping to prepare his disciples for his departure. Right? These things I've spoken to you, my disciples. Why? That your joy, my joy, may be in you. Jesus promises to give his believers joy. Not happiness. Right? There is a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is based on circumstances. Joy doesn't have to be. The joy that Jesus shares with the intimate, personal, close relations, perfect relationship with the Father, he says, that's my joy that I give you. Jesus' own joy should and will permeate and, and go through us, seep out of us for those who walk in communion with him, who abide in him. Again, this joy is not based on circumstance, but rather who we are in Christ. And I think we all know this verse in Philippians chapter 4. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say to you, rejoice. Let your rejoicefulness or let your reasonableness be seen by everybody, be known by everybody. The Lord is at hand. So he's saying despite, and Paul writes that when he's under house arrest, chained to a guard, and he's awaiting a trial that could probably most likely end his life. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Despite your circumstance, let your rejoicing be seen by others. Why? To show that the Lord is at hand. There's joy in following Christ and being obedient in his commands. A lot of times people think, oh, well, I don't want to be a Christian. There's too many commands. There's too many things you have to do. It's a burden. Commands are a burden. I, oh, if I'm a Christian, I can't do this, 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 is this. As Christians, it's the flip side. It's, I love Jesus, so I don't want to do that. Right? We've been given that new heart. We've become a new creation in Christ. And I just, I want to just end with this. And <clears throat> I've purposely been leaving my my conclusions blank on my notes, and I, sometimes I panic. So I'm like, oh, how do I end? I, I was talking to someone earlier this week, and as I mentioned, I, I feel as if personally I've been going, been going through a pruning time and I'm fighting it. And I look out, and, and I look at our church, and I've been here my whole life. And, uh, and I just can't help but think, is God pruning us? Right? Is God pruning our church? Is there something that he's taking away from us that, that, that is stunting our spiritual growth towards him or, or our spiritual fruit bearing to give God glory? And I don't mean that as a superficial, like, it's, it's, oh, it's the church. It's your fault. We're getting pruned. It, it's, as I'm just praying through it, right, I'm thinking, as a church, we have two ways. If, if God is pruning us, we can either lean into Jesus take the pruning, encourage each other, keep our relationship in Christ, be faithfully serving and attending church to what? To worship and glorify God. Or the other is you just fight it and say, I don't want to go to church. No one's at church. I don't, I don't feel like going to church. It's, uh, no, it's not in the mood today. Something better, something better came up. And I, and I just, again, I just can't help in this, this time that we're in. Is God pruning us as a church? And, and if he is, then the encouragement and the joy that we have, and I'll end with this on a positive, is that if it's pruning, there'll be more fruit that we bear. We have to go through this hardship. We have to. Why? For God's glory. 
for God's glory. Again, I don't, I don't know, but that, that is a thought that does cross my mind, and I don't know if it crossed yours as we've been reading this together. Let me pray. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you so much for being the true vine. We thank you that where we have failed, and where we read in your word where Israel has failed, where they rebelled against God. And let's be honest, we would do the same. Where we have done that, we see that you never have. You are a perfect Savior. You are God. Jesus, I just pray that we can use these verses this week, be encouraged by these verses. Just know that if we're, if, <clears throat> if we're in you, if we abide in you, we can't help but to produce fruit. God, I know at the holiday seasons, and sometimes with daylight savings and with it getting dark quickly, sometimes we can just feel lonely. Sometimes we can feel far from you. Lord, I just pray that I know that not all of us are abiding as close as we should be in you. Lord, it is, sometimes it is a struggle to bear fruit. I'll be honest for myself. Lord, I just pray that we use this, these verses we went over as encouragement. Lord, that, that we can welcome pruning that we can stay abiding in communion and fellowship with your love. Jesus, thank you that you give us joy and love and that those joy and that love is not based on circumstances, but it's based on the truth of who you are. Jesus, you are a Savior. We celebrate this Christmas season, your birth, the incarnation, the Word became flesh. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Find joy that we have a God who pursued us, a God who came down and did something on our behalf that we can never do. A God who has, who has given us saving grace. Lord, I pray that this week the Holy Spirit can convict us where we need convicting, can strengthen us where we need strengthening. And Lord, what a privilege it is to just bring everything to you in prayer. We thank you, Lord, that again, we can be in you, that we can abide in your love, that you've given us your perfect love. So Jesus, I just praise you this morning, the true vine, the one who's only worthy of all our praise and worship. In your name I pray, amen.